welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle. Thanks for joining me today. I have a really special episode and one that I think you're going to love. We are going to talk about stress through the lens of personality type. To help us navigate this space, I brought on Rob Toomey, who was a guest on the show back in episode number three. And Rob is actually backed by popular demand. In episode three, Rob walked us through our personality type, what each letter of the four-letter code means, how to figure out our own, and ultimately how to use this tool to live a happier life. So in order to get the most benefit from today's show, you'll need to know your four-letter type code to really follow along. So if you've never taken a personality type assessment and want to understand what personality type is all about, then just hit pause right now and go tune into episode number three. If you know what personality type is, you've heard of Myers-Briggs, you've heard of being an introvert versus an extrovert, you have familiarity but you don't know your four-letter type code, then visit the show notes page at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 025, and you'll get instructions on how to access Rob's personality type assessment, which normally costs $100, but he's giving it to my audience for free until June 1st of this year. And all the instructions on how to log in and take the assessment are on the website. So a little bit about Rob. He's an expert on personality type, as you know, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Type Coach, which he runs with his wife, Carly. For 20 years, his company has trained over 130,000 people collectively through their online and in-person trainings, and they work with companies, major corporations all over the world. So one thing to note before we begin, Rob and I kick off the show talking about your dominant function. What's your dominant function? It's essentially your natural strength. So it's either thinking, feeling, sensing, or intuiting. Now, I'm going to be telling you what your dominant function is on the show. You'll hear me read from a PowerPoint slide that Rob gave to me, but to make it even simpler, that slide is also on the show notes page at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash zero two five. So you can refer back to that. You'll see every four letter type code and its corresponding dominant function. So for example, an INTP, their dominant function is thinking. It's all going to make sense once you listen to the podcast, but I just want to explain this concept of dominant function and where to find yours because we kick off the show with it. So as you already know, unmanaged stress, chronic stress, not only impacts the quality of our life, it can ultimately impact our health, which is why I really wanted to cover this topic and give you this really innovative information. So I'm super grateful that Rob is back because he is a natural teacher and really knows how to break down this information in a fun and engaging way with so many interesting examples. I know you're going to walk away with a new awareness of yourself. So on that note, let's dive into the show. 
Hey, Rob, welcome back. Hey, Michelle, great to be back. Well, you are here by popular demand. People loved really understanding their personality types and what it meant for their everyday scenarios. And today we're going to be talking about the impacts of stress so that people can have a better understanding based on their type, how stress shows up, and hopefully how to manage that a little bit. So I'm wondering, Rob, where is a good place to start? I noticed that the dominant function is critical to this. So is that a good place to to kick it off? Sure. Let's dive in there. I mean, for me, it's always important to point out that there are sort of universal elements that are true for stress. So, you know, a lot of people find exercise helpful or, you know, a sip of herbal tea. And then there are very specific personality type pieces to the story. Uh, And this is where it's really interesting from our perspective to look at uh, what we call the fault lines that are sort of baked right into our personality. What is upsetting and triggering for me for my stress is quite different from those who are of a different personality type. And the same goes for how I get myself dug out of that hole. And a lot of it is uh, drawn from what you said, which is this dominant function. So uh, what is the dominant function? The dominant function is the part of your personality that is the most natural and easiest thing for you to use. Uh, If you're looking at your four-letter type code, it's one of the two middle letters. So it's either sensing or intuition, thinking or feeling. And for each of the 16 personality types, there's one of those preferences, which we call dominant. Uh, It doesn't mean that that's the only thing you use, but it's the sort of most comfortable and natural place for your brain to go. It tends to be fairly well-developed and comfortable. And what we notice is a number of really interesting patterns emerge when we start to put pressure on someone. So uh, that's the overview, and then I can give some specific examples if that would be helpful. I, I actually do think it will be helpful, and I'm wondering, Rob, should I just quickly just do a quick overview of what the dominant function is, like which types fall under which ones? Absolutely. Okay, so I, this is from your slide. So um, dominant thinkers, INTP, ESTJ, ENTJ, and ISTP. Dominant feelers are ENFJ. ESFJ, INFP, and ISFP. Dominant intuitives are INTJ, INFJ, ENTP, ENFP. And dominant sensors are ISTJ, ISFJ, ESFP, and ESTP. So now that people know where they, which dominant function they have, maybe we can just go in a little bit deeper here. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure everyone's got that clear in their head. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) I may have to, if it's with your permission, I was going to say with your permission, I'll, I'll have that slide on, on the uh, show notes page. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So, so basically the way it works is you've got one of these um, aspects of your personality, which is most natural for you. When you start to apply stress, we perceive that there are basically two primary things that happen. Uh, The first is going from a normal, everyday, sort of non-stress state to what we call the yellow zone. And in the yellow zone, what we see is a heightening of that dominant preference. That function starts to go onto a little bit of overdrive. So for the dominant sensors, it means you become even more focused on the grounded, practical, realistic things. And expressions like caught in the weeds or tunnel vision are a great fit for that phenomenon in that yellow zone. Uh, So it gives you a flavor for what happens. For dominant feelers, the emotional situation is turned up. So you become 
more aware of what's happening on your emotional state and more sensitive to uh, the emotional component in the situation. Uh, for dominant thinkers, everything is black and white in this sort of uh, yellow zone heightened stress state. So it's pros, cons, that's it. There's no sort of consideration for other things. And then for the dominant intuitives, it becomes a little bit sort of crazed possibilities. Uh, lots of unlikely scenarios uh, are now pursued, and there's not really any follow-up on any of them. And what's really interesting, Michelle, is that this is remarkably consistent. So across cultures, across ages, once we understand understand someone's type code, we start to talk to them about the stress piece, and they are having a very consistent experience, uh, both with the yellow zone and then that next piece that we'll talk about, which is the red zone. So that's really interesting. Um, I was curious about that. So that's actually really fascinating. And when you say, even regardless of age, uh, can you just get into this? Because this was actually one of the questions after the first time you came on. At what age can you determine your child's type? And, you know, because I don't know to what degree this information will be applicable to people if they're thinking about their kids. Sure. It's definitely applicable. Uh, the only thing that we typically say is just be open to changing your hypothesis about your kid's type over time. So, you know, certain aspects of personality are likely to emerge before they're 10 years old. Uh, maybe not all of them. And some changes may occur. It doesn't mean that the actual underlying preference changes. We think that you're kind of born with that. But the behaviors as we go through, you know, dramatic life changes uh, through adolescence in particular uh, can really mess up how we're perceived by others uh, and how we make our choices. So, you know, I think both of my kids, for example, are pretty clear extroverts. Uh, there are periods of time where, you know, we really would like them to be quiet and they, they have difficulty <laughs> with that. Um, right. And for them as both, I think, perceivers, right. So playful, relaxed, spontaneous, you know, when we moved to Barcelona, it wasn't really that big a deal for them. You know, they didn't have a plan in place. And so making the switch wasn't really, uh, disruptive to them. And I think a way that it might've been for someone of a different preference. So, uh, I think, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20, you can start to really zero in on, uh, you know, the four-letter code for, uh, you know, an individual. But until then, I'd be sort of open to considering, oh, maybe maybe they're, you know, just going through a phase here. So that's my general rule of thumb. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. So then let's get into where you don't want to go, which is the red zone, the extreme stress. Yeah. <laughs> so everything that I talk about with people when I introduce this concept of stress and personality type has one goal. Let's try to avoid ending up in the red zone. <laughs> so uh, in the red zone, we sort of lose touch with our dominant function. And all of a sudden, the most sort of uh, warm, caring, emotional person who is a dominant feeler is shut off from their emotional uh, connection altogether. They feel a sense of numbness, and it becomes just black and white, uh, pros and cons. Uh, and what's really interesting is in this phenomenon, uh, people sort of lose touch with themselves. There's an amazing book by Naomi Quank, who is really a pioneer of this red zone phenomenon, called Was That Really Me? And I think the title captures exactly what she's talking about, which is that during this super extreme stress, you know, hopefully not more than once a year, we lose touch with ourselves. Uh, and often people sort of come to themselves after they've had it happen. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Because at that time, it really felt like it wasn't them in control of their actions and statements. Wow. Okay. So we definitely want to keep out of the red zone, but it sounds like 
If we go anywhere, it's usually yellow, but maybe there's serious stress that compounds and triggers this extreme stress that you just described. Yeah, exactly. So I touched on what happens for the dominant feelers, right? So I might as well cover the other three as well. Yes, please. Uh, Dominant sensors, right? So the most grounded, practical, realistic people on the planet all of a sudden go to the opposite of sensing, which is intuition. And they start to imagine highly unrealistic possibilities, usually with a negative uh, outcome. So catastrophizing is the phenomenon. Uh, My favorite example of this was a, a colleague of mine when I was practicing law was going through an, a, an incredibly stressful period to the point where he was having like uh, twitches in his face from a neurological perspective. Oh. And I think he came home from work one day, was expecting to find his wife and son there, and they were not there. And this is the most grounded, practical guy you're ever going to meet. And his brain went to possibilities. So he's like, oh my gosh, they must have crashed the car. Oh. You know, my wife is probably dead. You know, how am I going to raise my son on one salary? And so he actually pulled out a spreadsheet and started producing um, an analysis of what he could do with one salary when she and his son walked in the door. Oh, my God. Wow. So this is so this is actually really helpful. So when people are listening and they know their dominant preference, for example, is sensing if they're in this place, they know that they're they're extremely stressed. And this is why they're processing it. What is not a natural place for them in a very extreme place. Absolutely. And so a couple things. So handle with care. Everything we're talking about here sort of has a, there's like a nuclear uh, component to it from a a significance perspective. When people are really stressed out, uh, this is when they break the trust in their relationships because Mm -hmm. they start behaving completely uncharacteristically. And when people see that, they're like, wow, I really thought this person was one way. And now when I'm seeing something completely opposite, how can I trust that this person is who they say they are? Uh, now, this can be in the professional context where all of a sudden your boss is acting erratically in, in this manner, and it really is disruptive to the relationships on the team. But it's equally possible and perhaps more likely in the personal life where all of a sudden you're seeing this person acting completely out of character. Mm. Yeah. No, it's helpful because you actually have to have compassion if you're not also stressed along with them and be able to say, okay, wait a second. They, they may need my help. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other, the other key thing that we've learned over the years is that you can't really have a great conversation with someone when they're... Uh, so, you know, you I think, Rob, to- we've all been guilty of trying because once you, yeah. when you're talking about this, I think, oh, why am I trying to rationalize when somebody's not there with me right now? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They, they need time and, and uh, some TLC to get back to a safe place where... We can talk about how they ended up there. Um, By the way, I can also recommend that if you're watching or listening to this with your spouse, don't turn to them and say, I think you're in the red zone, because that's also not constructive. (laughs) (laughs) Not the time to be pointing out uh, their stress uh, triggers right now. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Exactly. One quick thing occurred to me. So, um, you know, just to give an example. So uh, it's really true that people have very different triggers. And so a lot of times the confusion in these moments are why is this person in the red zone or really, you know, maxing out on the yellow zone for a circumstance that I don't think justifies it. Mm. And the reality is that because we have such strong different reactions to things, what is stressful to me is not stressful to someone else. So for my wife and I, we're very different uh, personalities 
And we've now been entrepreneurs for 15 years, which means we've had 15 uh, years of uh, experience dealing with very stressful things happening to us. And sometimes she gets really, uh, really strong reaction to that uh, phenomenon. And sometimes I have a really strong reaction to that. And it's been really helpful for us to understand that when she's freaking out, it doesn't mean that it's invalid simply because I can't relate to it. It's just a different set of triggers for her. And I, I have to step back and say, okay, how do we get here? And what's the best way to get back to uh, a steady, a steady state? And what have you found is the best way? Is it to give the person space and just let them calm down? Or, you know, how long do they stay in this red zone? Well, hopefully not for very long. There are some people who I think are in a chronic state, uh, but that's very, very uncommon. Uh, and they don't <laughs> they don't have an easy time getting through regular life. Um, so for most people, it's a few hours or a day or two. Uh, and it really it, it points to something pretty severe is happening in their lives. But if you think back over the last five years to that moment where you were really, really uh, struggling, and you just felt overwhelmed by the stress, and you considered the phenomenon, chances are you started to exhibit some of these behaviors, which is you're turning up the volume on your not your natural dominant preference, and then eventually losing touch with it entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, we covered feeler and sensor going to their opposite, and can we do thinker now? Yeah, let's do thinkers. So uh, poor thinkers. So uh, the reason I say that is because you know, these are the most logical people. These are the folks that you seek out for that calm, objective perspective most of the time. Uh, you know, they they're just very balanced in their worldview for the most part, right? Uh, when they start to yellow zone, then it becomes uh, logic to the exclusion of everything. And then when they really red zone out, all of a sudden they're stuck in emotional feeler land. But they go from the opposite of thinking to feeling. Uh, and it's an emotional place for them. And because they don't spend that much time there, Michelle, it's scary, um, you know, to all of a sudden be crying or feeling angry at, to a point where you can't really control it uh, over something that normally wouldn't bother you. Uh, it really does feel like a loss of self. Uh, so <laughs> my, my example for, for Carly, who's an ESTJ, which is dominant thinking, uh, we were spending some time um and an environment that was really stressful for her for a number of reasons. Uh, and then we went to get money from an ATM and the ATM ate her card, which oh, no. on any given day, right, would be, I guess, a four out of 10 or maybe a six out of 10 frustration. But for her, it maxed her out with the straw that broke the camel's back and tears emerged. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting there going, I didn't see tears at the wedding. And now I'm seeing them <laughs> at the ATM. It, it was it was an interesting phenomenon, right? And it, you know, we, when we pieced it together, looking at it through this particular lens, it made perfect sense. You know, For her, that was moving from thinking to feeling and having that overpowering emotional experience. Uh, and what's interesting for the dominant thinkers is that this typically leads them to um, go away from society. Uh, it's such an uncomfortable experience for them to be showcasing this emotion that they tend to seek for solitude uh, as one of their key steps for rehabilitation. Mm, Okay. And you know what? This gets interesting because I know that, you know, there can be very, like three out of the four letters can be different. But when we're talking about dominant function, for example, thinking, the stress response is similar. Is that true? Absolutely, yeah. So take, for example, ENTJ and ISTP, very different four-letter codes, very different temperaments, core values, everything. 
but they both share that heavily weighted uh, focus on thinking. And so for them, the phenomenon, uh, phenomenon is very similar. It's, you know, red zone is going to feeling land, which is not a place where they spend a lot of time. Yeah. Okay. So that's helpful to just understand how this dominant function really plays out, um, you know, regardless of your type, your four-letter type code in general. Yeah, you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out the formula, um, or you can just say, okay, I understand this is the dominant, so here's the pattern of behavior that we're likely to see. Totally. That's why we're just giving them the, <laughs> their their dominant <laughs> function. Keep it simple. They don't need to figure out how it got there. Okay, so what about the intuitives? What happens to them? Well, so this is you and I, Michelle, so we can we can both try to commiserate on this. So again, the yellow zone for dominant intuitives is uh, lots of crazy, unconnected, and unlikely to um, be achieved ideas. Uh, and so my, my favorite example of this was, you know, I was helping someone in a major career transition. Uh, and this particular person felt really trapped in their career. Uh, and the stress started to pile up uh, from all sorts of places. And so then this individual started generating ideas that were wildly unlike, oh, I'm going to start a magazine. Oh, I'm going to, you know, build this whole new company. I'm like, well, first of all, like, I don't think that's possible. And before he would even finish that idea, he was on to the next one. And none of these were actually followed through on. It was just uh, a random idea generation to sort of see if they could scramble out of the stress using their dominant function to its fullest. Uh, But it's not really a very elegant use. Uh, And so then finally, when the um, stress overpowers the situation, we lose intuition and we go to the opposite, which is sensing. And so now all of a sudden, the biggest picture people out there, the most focused on the future, become obsessed with uh, insignificant details in the here and now. Uh, So you might have some examples of this, Michelle. My favorite was actually when I was a lawyer, uh, it was three o'clock in the morning, yeah, I've got 10 hours worth of work left to do. It, there's just no way it's going to get done. And I snapped. And instead of just packing up and going home and saying, you know, whatever, I actually went into the document I was working on and started changing the font. <laughs> <laughs> because somehow this made sense. And I remember getting extremely angry at someone who had chosen the wrong paper clips for this mailing that we were working on. You know, both of those two things on a normal Tuesday where I'm not in any of these stress responses, I would be the last person to care about this stuff. But all of a sudden, it became the only thing I could focus on. Okay, that's hilarious. And actually, I did watch a training that you and your wife Carly did, and she gave an example of where you came home and started organizing, like, the shoe closet or something. You just were so stressed (laughs) out that you felt the need to, like, organize a closet that you would never do. I can get like that. Well, all of a sudden I'm like, I know what I need to do. I need to, yeah. And I will go to a closet and I'll start rearranging things and like trying to organize it or feel like, is it, it's like a, a desire to control what I can or something. Is that, does that help explain it a little bit? Yes. We become aware of things in our detail present day that we're typically not aware of. And then we seek to control that as a way to get out of the stress response. Right. So, yeah, in my case, it was the, the the hallway closet because, you know, it never shut. And then this one day I came home and I was stressed out and I tried to shut the door. It wouldn't shut. And I said, I'm going to fix this once and for all. And so I pull everything out of that closet and Carly comes around the corner and she's like, what the heck? Uh, it, it's just a signal to the partner in, in Carly's case. Wow. Rob is behaving way out of character. There's a signal here. There's something going on. Uh, and I need to now tread very carefully because 
you know, if I start to give them a hard time or, you know, if we, if we really start to not be supportive of that person in that moment, it's going to become a lightning rod for all of their stress. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I hope that one of the big takeaways is, is that if somebody you're working with, or more importantly, somebody you love, your partner, spouse is really acting very different than they normally do that and you know that they're probably under stress to really have compassion for them and to give them the space that they need um, or offer up some support. And if they're not in a place to receive it, to really give them space. That's what I'm taking away. Would you agree, Rob? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Try to catch them before they go to the red zone, because then it's going to be a much bigger mess to clean up. Um, and, you know, again, especially in the work context, that's really where the teams you know, will struggle to regain the trust. Uh, because that one person can say or do something that can be catastrophic to the team's dynamic uh, and really ruin, you know, hard-won uh, relationships uh, built over years. Absolutely. And nobody wants that. And so that's, you know, I think that's the thing. I think in relationships, even when you've been with somebody for so long, if they're in this extreme stress that, you know, wasn't there was no trigger point for it. Let's say, you know, like a move, you guys just moved to Barcelona. Anytime you're doing something new or big, it can create an opportunity for new stress. My husband and I both started companies last year. So stress level is in a different place than it normally would be. And so I'm trying to, I'm, I'm seeing both of us, you know, more reactive for different reasons. Um, you know, and I, and I think this is actually going to be really helpful, um, for me to remember, especially, you know, to give him some space <laughs> and not try yeah. to solve for it, you know, as the partner you want to, as a feeler too, I want to be there and support and help as much as possible. But sometimes we make things worse. Yeah. Well, so you actually were touching on one of the things that I had made a note of to sort of introduce into the conversation. So most of our clients are asking us for, you know, Rob, can you help us with change and transformation? Because, you know, business is changing so fast right now and people are having a really hard time keeping up. Um, technically speaking, if you look at our personality type code, Michelle, like you and I both like change. We're, we're sort of drawn to mm-hmm. doing new and different things and we find it invigorating. I think it's just really important to note that that's not the norm in the population. Uh, most people have a much stronger affinity towards and uh, appreciation of things that they've seen have worked in the past. Uh, and so letting go of that is actually produces stress. So, you know, often in a change and transformation environment, the people who are the, um, the catalysts for the change, who are driving the change, are the ones who are naturally drawn towards that behavior. And they're the ones scratching their head the most when everyone else around them is confused and stressed out, uh, which makes perfect sense when you look at it through this lens. But all of a sudden, you're cleaning up a, a, a stressful situation that you didn't anticipate. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. And I'm thinking, too, now... Where do the extroversion and introversion pieces come into it? So, for example, okay, I'm going to look at your your uh, chart here because that's going to help me. But if you have somebody who is a dominant thinker, like an INTP, right? So I'm going and looking, and then you're saying thinkers turn go to feeling. If they're introverting that, would they express it different than an extroverted version of a dominant thinker? Sure. So it's a bit of a nuance. So for those who are introverts, their dominant function occurs inside. It's not something that the world sees. It's actually occurring in an internal capacity. So for INTPs, ISTPs, it's 
introverted thinking. So their dominant function is to go inside their brain and say, what are the pros and cons? And they do it super quickly, but it's an internal function. Whereas an ENTJ and an ESTJ, both of whom have that same dominant thinking function, it's extroverted for them. So the best way that it shows up is through talking. So they talk through their pros and cons analysis. And this happens all the time with Carly, who's an ESTJ. She'll come by my office and say, so I've got to talk this through with you. I don't say anything. <laughs> but by the time she's done with you know, sort of laying out the challenge, she's produced the solution from her own uh, analysis. Uh, and that's a classic extroverted behavior. You and I, Michelle, both um, extroverted intuitive. So mm-hmm. ENFP for you, ENTP for me. We talk through our ideas. Yep. Our ideas and possibilities are most likely to occur when we have a chance to verbalize it. Uh, so when we flip that around, what that means is that the 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 four the dominant function when it's flipped around is also flipping around uh, to this other um, dimension. So for INTP and ISTP, who introvert that thinking preference, their emotion when they reach that breaking point is extroverted. So they're starting to express emotion to other people. And again, this is so uncharacteristic for them. Mm. They don't spend a lot of time doing this. That is going to catch everyone off guard uh, around them. Yeah, that's helpful. Again, I'm feeling like it can bring up compassion if you're aware of it instead of triggered. Because when it's your partner, you often can get triggered (laughs) instead of versus at work, you might go, hmm, so-and-so is not really acting themselves. I'm going to give them some space or say, you know, anything like if you're their boss, you know, anything I can do to support you, I can see that you're not you're not yourself today kind of thing. Um, But in a personal situation, I could see how you could trigger each other. Um, Rob, would it be too would it make sense to go into the dominant pieces and give an example for each category? Or is that like taking on too much? So sure, let's go for it. So I was actually just thinking of another one for uh, the dominant thinkers. So a gentleman in a workshop, um, no names here. This is an intense experience for him. Um, So he's ENTJ. And he had a really stressful situation. I'll just sort of summarize it really quickly. His son has special needs and on the highway tried to exit a moving vehicle. Um, And uh, it really pushed this gentleman right into the red zone. And he pulled the car over, got out of the car, realized that he was completely, um, let's say, out of control of himself and started walking. He just walked off the highway and his wife took over the driving and drove off. And he said he didn't come home for 11 hours. Wait, she left Uh, him on the highway? He got out of the car? He just started walking. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) this is this is what the red zone is. It's not making good decisions. It's it's purely uh, a reactive almost. Um, it, it, there's not an easy way to describe it. You're not really in control of yourself. But he walked for 11 hours before finally climbing uh, into bed. And his wife, which I give her enormous credit for, didn't say a word. Wow. She understood that what had happened had sort of snapped him for that period of time. He was going to come back around to be able to have the conversation about what had happened. But at that moment, it was not going to be possible. Mm. I think this is why I love personality type, because if you understand your own and your partner's, then you can realize when to back off. Like, it took me a while to realize, wait a second, my husband's clearly an introvert. The second he comes home, I don't need to be, 
you know, talking about everything. <laughs> Give him some time to just, you know, decompress a little and then he'll engage naturally. And he always does. But, you know, it's, yeah, that's, wow. All right. Since since we're on dominant thinkers, Rob, let's start there in terms of, so a dominant thinker, generally speaking, is you're saying they're the logical ones, right? So in, you know, when they're not stressed, they're weighing pros and cons, right? They're, they're very logical. Yeah, they have the easiest time seeing the logic of a situation and maintaining objective distance about it. So for them, it's super easy to say, oh, well, so if that's the situation, here's what you should do. Uh, and for them, they have to remind themselves on a, you know, on a regular day to incorporate the human component into the decision, to check in with their values. That's the, the least preferred function for them. So it's something that they have to sort of uh, consciously develop. They have to put uh, intention into that a- activity. And that's why it's so uncomfortable when they end up there in this high-stress state. Okay. So then in the yellow zone, they're doubling down on their thinking. So can you give us an example of this then coming out in the yellow zone? Do it or you're fired. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's really blunt to the point, you know, this, this, I don't need to hear anything more. Just go get it done. So it's <laughs> right. So it's, that's a factual statement. You know, I need you to do this, go do it. I'm not going to be especially accommodating or sympathetic in the situation. Uh, just go get it done. And, you know, I'm exaggerating it a little bit, but that, that is the, the urge that they're fighting because they want to go back and get stuff done and remove the stress. They don't want to deal with um, things that have an emotional component to it because to them it feels uncomfortable and uh, like it's an unproductive use of time in that moment. Right. And so f- normally speaking, it can be draining for them to have to emote too much, to show a lot of emotions. I know Carly was a teacher and she shared, uh, you know, parent-teacher conferences could be really draining by the end of the day because she had to be so sensitive to emotions for whatever, six hours straight or however long those teacher conferences go for. Um, is that an accurate example then of... Um, it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. So when, when we're not, when we're using something that's, you know, that far down our priority list in terms of mental function, it, it's not that we can't do it. In fact, if you had videotape of Carly doing those parent conferences, you could use that as an example of what to do in those meetings. She's really, really good at it. But it's draining. It's yeah. taking a great deal of energy and focus to pull off. And at the end of that, she's you know completely exhausted. Now, when we're stressed, it's very difficult to remember to do that. When we get stressed, we default back to our preferred communication style, and we don't put energy into the things that balance us out a little bit. Okay, so in the green zone, in a normal situation, having to be in more of the emotional piece of it, that would be draining, but that's not a stress response. But then if that person was already stressed in the yellow zone, having to conduct that, they may not be able to use the feeling side as much because they're already triggered, right? They're double down on their thinking. Exactly. It's going to take a ton more energy for them to pull it off and a very conscious and deliberate reminder for them to actually do it, right? Because their inclination in that moment is to not accommodate, but to, to let the world know, I my needs are not being met, so back away. Right. Um, that's what the yellow zone is saying. And so how does somebody get out of the yellow zone? How do you become aware? So give an example to somebody who is a dominant thinker 
of what that might look like for them and how how they can pull themselves out of there before they hit that red zone because we know we don't want anyone in the red zone. <laughs> sure, sure. So it's I mean it's a little bit different, and this is the, where the nuance comes in based on each type. So the four types that are dominant thinkers actually have a slightly different recipe for mm. what will get them back to the green zone, as we call it, right? That normal, sure. that normal state. So for Carly as an ESTJ, it's about taking control of the the practical world. So for her, it's shutting the door, not looking at email, and just coming up with her to-do list. Uh, it's shuffling all the papers that have uh, gathered up around her that feel overwhelming and just boiling it down to one place and saying, you know what? It's a lot, but I can get that done. And that, that is the, um, the pressure valve for her stress. Once she has that activity, then she sort of knows she's back in control and you can immediately see the, the benefit. Now, I think that's a good activity for anyone to take, but it's especially helpful for that particular type code. Yeah. Okay. So that's helpful. So basically it's becoming aware. And do you think that people, when they're in the yellow zone, are aware of it? Well, so if they've seen it enough times, yes. Yeah. So I, I think that's the, the key is to recognize that your yellow zone is going to look different than other people. Yeah. So like for some people, yellow zone clues are like, I'm eating a lot of chocolate again. You know, like right. uh, the, the signals are you're you're doing uh, behaviors that are compensating for your stress level. And when you start to look at what those behaviors are, you can see the pattern. Uh, by the way, so um, that approach to taking control of the sensing environment would apply to the ISTP, who's also the dominant thinker, for the two intuitive dominant thinkers, so ENTJ and INTP, it's really stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. Uh, that's where their clarity will come from, which is to say, in the broader scheme of things, this is really not that big a deal. I can handle this even if it goes wrong. Uh, and putting things into a broader perspective is usually the the pressure valve for their stress coming back down to normal. Mm. So let's go to the intuitives then. Sure. So uh, for you and I, so the yellow zone is that ramping up of the possibilities piece, you know, wild disconnected ideas um, for us to, so we're both intuitive, right? So for us, the difference is going to be slightly uh, driven by that thinker or feeler dimension. So for you connecting with people is the first step in the yellow zone to get back to normal you know, reestablishing the importance of those key relationships and feeling that sense of connection and support is going to be your pressure valve. For me, it's running the logic on the situation and saying, you know, pros and cons analysis, doing my actual, my, my good friend, Brian does this. He does a whole decision tree for the current situation he's in. Well, if this happens, then here's my choice. And this is the outcome. If this happens instead, then here's my choice. And this is the outcome. And once he sees the landscape for the decisions and the potential outcomes, he's like, I can live with that. And his stress level goes down dramatically. So would you say, so you're an ENTP. So would you say that's the same for the INTJ because you both have thinking? Absolutely. Right. And then the ENFP and the INFJ should be connecting with others to come back to Precisely. grounding. Okay. Yeah, that's that's easy enough to remember. Okay. And them and the red zone, we talked about that. Then we're cleaning out the closet and getting all <laughs> organized. Changing the font, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Changing the font. That's, Rob, that's hilarious. I got to remember if I've ever done something like that. That's, <laughs> that's actually a great example. Okay. So let's move on then to the feelers. Sure. So the yellow zone is the amplification of the feeling preference. So 
you know, becoming more attuned to the emotional state. And I also see a hypersensitivity. So they can be easily offset by, uh, uh, upset by someone, you know, a side comment or something that they normally would be able to put into the right context, but all of a sudden feels like a kind of a personal attack for them. Uh, and again, the, the way that they get out of or prevent themselves from going into the red zone is relying on the other function. So if they're dominant feelers and they're a sensor, it's taking control of their sensing environment, the, the practical things in their lives. So you know, like an ESFJ should be, you know, getting that to-do list together and taking control of their physical environment. Uh, those are the kinds of recipes that I think are going to uh, help reduce their stress. Whereas an ENFJ or an INFP, it's really stepping back and look at the, the broader picture and, and putting everything into that uh, longer term context. Okay. I, I actually think I have a friend who just went through this and to the point where she was letting her kid make decisions on things. She was so doubling down on the feeling state that she couldn't stay grounded enough to make the decisions. And she sort of gave up. Would that be an example of it? Or is that? That's yellow zone perfectly described. Yeah. So uh, what's happening there is, you know, as the, as the volume gets turned up, as the feeling gets accentuated, the stinker gets further away and it takes even more energy and focus to attain. And so, yeah, it feels like I don't even know what to think. Can someone else come in and give me some thinking, some pros and cons analysis? Um, And, you know, it's entirely possible that person's like my 13 year old is better positioned to make that decision than I am because I'm, I'm purely um, focusing on one element, not the whole, uh, the whole piece. Yeah. And actually I had seen your presentation and that's how I could help her. Cause I was like, you know what? I think you're doubling down. (laughs) I said those exact words. I think you're doubling down on your feeling state because you are not, you're not acting like how you normally would. And I think she appreciated it. I think with good friends, you know, if you're coming from a complete a place of compassion and caring and say, hey, if I'm overstepping my bounds, let me know. But I'm just observing this right now. And this isn't how you would normally act. Because I was actually a little concerned about what I was seeing. And I was a little worried because it was so uncharacteristic. And I think I was afraid she was going to head into the red zone. Um, yeah. And then... And so a feeler going into the thinker, right? And then go into more thinking and then the feeling would just be shut down in red, right? Yeah. And the, the phenomenon they describe is a sense of numbness, right? All mm. of a sudden they're just like, I don't care, do whatever. Or, you know, this is the answer and I don't care what you have to say. Uh, an uncharacteristic, blunt, harsh. Um, and the other piece that comes in sometimes, it's not always, uh, and probably more on the personal side than in the professional side, because they're such strong feelers, they have a really powerful sense of connection with other people. They've invested a lot of time and energy into relationships. And unfortunately, they can use that information that they've gained from that hurtfully in this state. Mm. Um, they know what really is going to upset the other person. So when they when they take an attack, it's going to be especially harmful because mm. they know what's really going to cut the other person to the core. Uh, and again, later when they come to their senses, when they get back in control, they're sitting there going, I'm like, I can't believe I said that. I mean, yeah. I, I, that's just so not who I am. Right. Because they're feelers. They care about what other people yeah. feel. That's that's how that's their general state of being. Yeah, this is so good. I think she was borderline red zone for sure. Um, so, yeah, that's that's helpful. Now, I think the only one we didn't do was dominant censor. Is that true or am yeah. I getting right? I think that was the one. You are correct. Okay. Yeah. Because we started with the thinker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so for the dominant sensors, right, so the way back from the brink 
is through the opposite fun- function. So if they're a thinker, it's getting some ground, some uh, logical control of the situation, running the pros and cons analysis, saying, what's the worst case scenario? Okay, I can live with that. And that's the pressure release for them. For the feelers, right, the, the ISFJs, for example, uh, it's really about the connection with other people, that sense of support. Uh, that's going to be the reminder for them that in the broader scheme of things, this is not, um, you know, it's not the end of the world. I can get through this if I have my people uh, is that sentiment. Yeah, this is so, so helpful. I'm wondering any other examples that you can give just because I think people remember stories. It sits with them. Any that you can think of in particular that might just highlight a few of these, a couple of these? Sure. So we had a dominant sensor who shared in a workshop a few, a few years ago that um, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. So she was staying with a bunch of friends at a, uh, a large house, um, you know, on a sort of like a getaway with some friends. And her uh, fiance was calling her. And on the final day, everyone else had left the house except for her. And she was on the phone with her fiance. She's like, yeah, everything's great. Uh, Anyways, as they're about to hang up the phone, her phone dies. And so he frantically (laughs) starts to call her back and she's not answering. So he thinks something's wrong and sends the police to to the house. Oh, no. So she's by herself. She's in bed. She's sleeping peacefully. She thinks there's no problem. She's like, well, my phone dies. He'll figure it out. And all of a sudden, like a SWAT team knocks, you know, breaks down the door to her bedroom. And she, she's a dominant sensor. And so where her brain went was, okay, this is the police. They're checking to see if I'm okay, which might have been the right response. Uh, she's like, I'm, I'm going to die. And she actually fainted. She, she complete, her whole psyche shut down. Um, as, and I think it's a protective state. It's like, I can't process this information, so I'm going to shut down. Uh, and she related afterwards that it was a complete out-of-body experience. Oh, uh, that yeah. for her, she could not place where this information was coming from. And for her, uh, as a dominant sensor, it really just pushed her way over the edge. Uh, and I think what was interesting in her case, she was sh- sharing that example with you know, four or five other people who share that dominant function. And they were all like, I would have done the exact same thing. Because she went into intuitive state, right? But intuitive. So I think what we didn't cover to some degree, and I know that you've mentioned this in the past, it's when people are stressed, whether that's in the yellow zone or then the extreme stress, right? When they're going to the opposite function, it's almost like a little kid version of them taking over. Yeah. So the analogy that we give, and I think it might be helpful. um, So your dominant function is kind of like the driver of the car. Uh, You've got a family of four in the car, let's say. So the driver is your dominant function. Your next preferred function is sort of like uh, a grown-up sitting next to you who's helping you navigate. And in the backseat are the two other functions that are just less well-developed. The the least um, developed is that, like, let's say a four- or five-year-old kid in the backseat. And as we go through the stress stage, what ends up happening in the red zone is it's like the, the youngest kid in the backseat is suddenly driving the car. Uh, we haven't spent a lot of time developing that particular function. So it has a sort of pre-adolescent quality to it. Uh, and it can feel terrifying. You know, this, this kid's driving me, if I'm the car, down the highway to 100 miles an hour screaming his head off. Uh, and that's often the sensation that people feel. It's like, I'm not in the driver's seat anymore. Someone else is taking control. Right. So that's why when the sensor went into an intuitive mode, it's not the same way as somebody who's got dominant intuitive functioning who would have just 
I don't know, been thinking, okay, what's going on? She made it a catastrophe in her mind, right? She went to the worst case scenario and freaked herself out to the point that she passed out. She fainted. Correct. Correct. Okay. (laughs) And so just also to clarify for anyone listening too, so our dominant is, you know, it'll be on the chart in case you need to revisit that and understand what your dominant is. So when you are going to the opposite of your dominant, so if you're the thinker, going to the feeler or the sensor, going to the intuitive, that's where you're no longer in the driver's seat and now you've handed the reins over to your five-year-old in the back seat. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. Yeah. Um, is it helpful to understand, so who's in the, who's in the passenger seat? Which, which type, which part of the four letters is that? Sure. So that's actually what I've been uh, talking to about the solution. So um, it's, the, it's the letter next to your dominant function. So for you and I, we're both dominant intuitives, right? So intuition is number one. Right. So the letter next to that in the middle is either thinking or feeling. Okay. That's the next, that's the next function for us. Uh, and so we rely on that to get ourselves back to uh, a grounded state. Okay, so that's helpful. So you can just look at your combination and say, okay, the one next to is my, that's my companion. That's how I get back to the green zone and out of the yellow. Exactly. And be patient with yourself because, you know, when you get really caught up in the yellow zone for, you know, you can go yellow zone for weeks if you're not careful. It's really Mm -hmm. not healthy, uh, but you can. And so, you know, you don't just flip a switch and suddenly you're back to the green zone from an experience like that. And, you know, just to go back to what you were saying at the beginning, Michelle, I believe stress is what ultimately kills us. Um, It manifests in different ways. Our body being bombarded by cortisol which is the stress chemical, that's what breaks us down. So, you know, if we can understand that there are different triggers, we can watch out for those, we can manage ourselves more effectively. Um, Ideally, that's going to help us live not only happier lives, but longer ones as well. Yes, absolutely. You know, people have questions. We covered a lot of material here. Uh, So, you know, as those questions come in, let me know how I can help. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, This has been so interesting and so helpful. I appreciate your time, Rob. And um, you gave the information last time, but where can people learn more about you and find you online? Sure. We're at typecoach.com, T-Y-P-E-C-O-A-C-H.com. Thanks, Rob. This has been such a pleasure. My pleasure, Michelle. Anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation and all the information that was shared and that it helps you in a meaningful way. If you know somebody who would benefit from the content, please take a second to share it. And if you've been enjoying the podcast in general, would you be so kind to take a second to rate and review it? It helps other listeners find the show. And more importantly, it helps me know what's resonating with you. So thank you so much for your time. It means the world to me. And I look forward to reconnecting next Wednesday. Bye for now.